Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in American Politics. Today I'm speaking with Patrick J. Charles about his new book, Vote Gun, How Gun Rights Became Politicized in the United States. Patrick is Senior Historian and Archivist for the United States Air Force. Vote Gun examines how gun rights activism has been transformed over the past century. Especially in the last half century, gun rights have become a, a key wedge issue that helps explain our ongoing political schism. Patrick deftly outlines how the pro-gun vote and the gun control vote respectively define American politics and culture. One quick note before we begin. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Air Force, Department of Defense, or U.S. government. Patrick, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ram Caleb. Of course. Uh, you know, before, before jumping into the book, uh, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yes. Um, well, I've, I've been with the Air Force for going on 13 years now as a historian and archivist in different capacities. Um, I've spent most of my time working for different special operations units within the Air Force. Um, currently, I serve as the research division supervisor at the Air Force Historical Research Agency. Um, basically, what I do is I lead a team of archivists in um, safeguarding and researching um, United States Air Force um, repository. Um, just prior to assuming this position, um, I was what was known as a legislative fellow for the Air Force. So I got to spend three years on Capitol Hill um, doing work for the Air Force in their capacity. Um, and in the process, learned a great deal about the political workings on Congress, um, which were beneficial to um, me writing this book. It was, it was quite a timely assignment, I would say. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about you know, some of the things that led to the writing of this book. Was there any particular conversation, document, or event that made you think that this is a book that needs to be written? Honestly, this was not a book I think I would ever write. Um, I, I've been writing about the Second Amendment going back to um, 2009, 2010-ish is when I started um, getting really deep into the Second Amendment. And the more I researched, um, the more I wanted to know is how, how did we kind of get to where the position we are at today, where we're so divided, where even we we can't even have a discussion about history without it um, raising huge disagreements and red flags between people. Um, so in 2014, while I was pursuing my LLM at the Queen Mary University in London, one of the, um, I had to write two dissertations, and one of them I decided to write on this topic, which was basically... Um, what I call the Second Amendment in the 21st century, and, and just trying to understand, you know, the, the political talking points. You know, why people have taken sides. Why did Republicans overwhelmingly support gun rights, and why did Democrats overwhelmingly support gun control? Obviously, neither party is a monolith completely. But the more we have progressed, the more that um, divide has been increasing. Those gaps, um, so much so that I mean, it, it's really hard to find. Um, moderates on either side of the aisle in this. Um, so when I was writing my book, which uh, pre preceded this was Armed in America, um, and it published in 2018, 
the, my original idea in researching all this, because a lot of it coincided, was um, to, to basically do a, a macro history on the politics of uh, gun rights and gun control and where we're at today, you know, going through the 2016 election between um, Donald J. Trump and Hillary Rodham Clinton. Um, but I just kept finding more and more information that led me to believe that to do such a book would be thousands of pages. Um, and more importantly, there was a story um, of the early to mid 20th century that hadn't really been told to the detail that it needed to be told. Uh, people had skipped over it. Also, there was this ongoing myth um, that the, the NRA as we know it today, which fights um, against most gun controls, I would say basically all gun control, but um, you know, was born in the late 1970s for the, this viewpoint um, of being more of a Second Amendment absolutist. Um, but it turns out in my research and the more I, I came to find out is that that was completely untrue, that the NRA, you know, going back to the 1920s was um, adamantly against most gun controls. And um, much of what we know about the NRA, that it was a supporter of moderate gun controls, which a lot of scholars had said prior to me writing my book, is that uh, it was it was patently false. It was actually propaganda that the NRA had put out to try to continue to politically straddle both sides and benefit greatly politically from its opposition to gun control on one side, but at the same time, um, getting support from gun rights supporters and, and firearms owners saying, hey, we're an ardent defender of the Second Amendment. But, you know, we'll get into that, but, you know, there basically became an inflection point where the NRA could no longer politically straddle both sides and it had to choose one or the other and then choosing being, um, you know, against gun so, so I was wondering if you could, you know, sort of picking up on that, talk a little bit about the history of gun gun control leading up to the the '60s, um, and then once we, you know, we'll we'll get more into the specifics of some of the debates around the '60s and the '70s. Uh, but what did that sort of prehistory look like? You already hinted at a little bit with the with the NRA's positions in the '20s. Yes, yeah, so I'll just start at the early the turn of the 20th century because I think you know we we don't want to go too far tech um, but yeah, the turn of the yeah, 20th of century. Um, the, the idea that we have today of that gun control is like a state-driven or gun rights are state-driven or, or even federally driven, like a national right, um, was, was non-existent. It was um, firearms regulations were highly localized. Um, you can go from one city to the other in the same state and have completely different gun controls. Um, you know, and you have, let's say you're traveling from Missouri all the way to California, same thing. You would, you would run into a myriad of different laws along the way. And no one really batted a, a, an eyelash at this um, until um, about you know the the late 1910s. Um, a group called the United States Revolver Association came about, and well, they were already in, in um, they're already around, they were already uh, established, but they came about politically, um, and they came about because in 1911 New York adopted what's called the Sullivan Law, and that law was um, one of the first, not the first, but one of the first. Um, state laws to require a permit to purchase a pistol. Um, I believe Minneapolis was the other city that enacted in Chicago may have enacted one as well. Um, so there was huge um, political upswell for firearms owners that did not want this law to spread to other states. They thought it was an abomination and an affront to the Second Amendment. And and they did anything and everything they could to lambaste it and say that it was you know, wrong-headed against the Second Amendment. So forth. So, USRA comes up with this idea. The United States Revolver Association. They say, "Well, let's come up with some model legislation, what we call sane and reasonable legislation." And, and 
if you actually read their legislation today, you'd say, wow, they're pretty uh, firm supporters of gun control. And, and in many ways, they were. I mean, this legislation supported things like background checks, um, waiting periods, and you know, requiring a permit to carry uh, a pistol, and, and not a shall issue as we know it today, but as may issue is that you know it was it was a discretionary permit um, based upon local licensing authorities. The idea behind this law of it being model was that they principally just wanted to, to, to stop the myriad of rules that could entrap a sportsman. Like if, if the sportsman was traveling from Illinois to Indiana. He'd be subject to different gun laws, and if he got caught doing a different gun law, you know he'd be in legal trouble. And this was to kind of get rid of that. Um, no one really takes the USRA, USA, USRA up on their offer. Just a, a very few um, states consider it. Um, it's not until the 1920s that the NRA gets involved um, that you you find it to spread. Um, and the NRA basically adopts USRA's model legislation wholesale, and that's because Carl Frederick who was an officer of both organizations. And um, again, they were able to basically just take this legislation and run with it. Um, I think at the end, they may have gotten, I haven't done a really good tally, but at most 40% of the states adopted some form of what they called um, uh, the Uniform Firearms Act at the time um, that basically, again, established these model laws. Um, After that, well, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, Those model laws were basically um, a springboard into what would become federal legislation. Um, and the reason the federal legislation comes about is because a lot of gangsters and um, underground criminals are able to thwart state firearms laws by going from one state to another. Um, the federal, the, pers- the pursuance of federal law to address this problem um, is, is taken up. Um, however, uh, almost immediately, as soon as the federal government takes it up, the NRA is adamantly opposed to it. Um, they start writing, they start putting in their, um, their magazine, the American Rifleman, that they did not want it to go forward and for its members to write against it. Um, as time goes on, they decide to kind of come aboard on it, uh, but only if they can write the legislation. And uh, they, they effectively do that. They basically get the opportunity to draft the bill um, and get it forward. And they say, um, to the public or to their to their constituents, firearms owners, and say, you know, this is a great bill. Get their back it may back and it gets passed. Um, but the bill really doesn't do anything to stop law abiding or a reasonable person from accessing firearms. It really was only geared towards um, gangsters. And with that said, I mean, firearms fatalities continue to happen um, all across the country, and the federal government wants to do more. And they think, well, the best way to do this is if we pass a law registering registering pistols perhaps long guns, but they really want to go after pistols because more than three quarters of all firearms related deaths um, in the 1920s and 1930s are, are due to pistols. So they're hoping to get the NRA on board with this. The NRA is opposed to it. It, it, it is a long drawn out process of roughly three and a half years of fighting between um, the Department of Justice and the NRA. And in the end, the NRA, the NRA wins, convinces Senator um, Royal Copeland of New York that um, it was in the government's best interest if they draft the legislation, which they did, and their legislation goes forward. And, and there was actually a provision in that legislation that would have negated the National Firearms Act, um, but for the Department of Justice um, pointing to the committee and saying, hey, we need to remove that provision. Um, it may have stayed in, and the 1934 bill may have been nullified. But um, that's how you get the 1938 Federal Firearms Act. Um, and then after that, really, 
the National Rifle, Rifle Association has a monopoly on all, on all firearms laws across the country at the state and local level. Yes, um, there are a few exceptions to the rule where some local governments were able to pass restrictive laws, but more or less, the NRA, through its system of um, rousing sportsmen, firearms owners, and, and hunters to kill rail against uh, firearms laws, um, nothing significant was enacted without the NRA's express approval. And were there supporters of the leadership uh, partial to one party versus another at that at this point in time? Yeah, at that time, I mean, up up and through the nineteen early nineteen sixties, there there was no partisan nature to gun control and gun rights. Uh, whether or not one was to support gun rights or gun control had nothing to do with political party whatsoever. Um, there was um, more or less a rule and urban divide. If you have a rural lawmaker, they were more or less willing to support gun rights over gun control and vice versa if you had an urban lawmaker. Um, but really, if you look at um, their opinions on this, um, you, you see there are two things. It's either they're very ill-informed of the issue because it's not something um, that's, that's making it to their desk, or they're basically just parroting whatever um, the NRA supporters are writing to them or the NRA has sent to them and discussed with them as talking points. Um, they're not very nuanced. They're not, they're not particularly well thought out. In fact, um, my perusal of lawmakers' opinions, especially on the Second Amendment, has shown they, they really did not have a very good understanding of, of its history um, and its left and right parameters. Um, they basically would just say, you know, I support it or, or I, I interpret it as this and have nothing to back it up. It was, it was a quick one-off, one or two sentences about it, and that was, that was it. So yeah, moving a little bit further uh, ahead in time, uh, if you could discuss the impact of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, what impact that had on the gun lobby and just the general debate around guns in the country? If I recall correctly, it was either the the, the day before or not long before. Um, it's, in my, it's in the book. And in New York, the gun rights advocates were about to undo several of, um, or, or at least lobby to undo several restrictive New York gun laws. Um, what ends up happening is after JFK is assassinated, that completely flips on its head, and, and um, a number of gun control bills are put forward, and uh, and I think only two pass. But um, the attitude in the country quickly goes pro gun control, and at this time, investigative reporting is really starting to take off. And what investigative reporters are quickly learning is that the reason that America was known for being, uh, I think, the quote Ted Kennedy was first and first in deaths and last in gun controls, um, is that the NRA was um, responsible for undoing or defeating or stalling most gun control bills. Um, they were able to do this before they even got to the committee and kill them um, through letter writing campaigns. So, you know, investigative reports kept digging and digging and digging. Um, and the NRA was basically outed as what, you know, they would call the gun lobby. Now, the NRA adamantly opposed this label. They were, they, you know, they were not the gun lobby. They were not paid. Um, by gun manufacturers per se, and, and they made every argument against it. However, if you actually look at their literature um, going up through the 1940s, they they held themselves out to be the gun lobby. Um, and they would often brag about their ability to defeat gun control legislation if they so chose to do so. So, um, And then lastly, they had a lot of um, congressional surrogates um, in place that they could relay information bills that, that they would then submit or talk to their fellow colleagues about about what to and what to not support. Um, did did the NRA at that time pay anybody 
uh, I'm Capitol Hill or lawmakers to do um, X, Y, or Z now. Um, but that, that's not what was going on back then. It was really more or less about, you know, political self-preservation. Is this the right side of the issue I need to be on to be reelected? So when Kennedy is assassinated, the NRA has to kind of deal with this new image. They, they wanted to maintain the image of what they were, which is basically a preeminent patriotic organization in the United States. And, you know, they had letters from presidents and generals saying what a great organization they were. However, what the NRA often left out, I mean, always left out, let's put it that way, is that uh, the NRA actually wrote those letters. I mean, they would send those letters to the lawmakers, the presidents, or the generals and say, can you sign this for us? And then we'll, they would publish it in their magazines and look look what great things they're saying about us. Uh, so that was left out. Um, yeah, so the crosshairs was on the NRA. Um, now, now all the criticism of the NRA was warranted, I want to say. There were, there were things the NRA was being blamed for um, that were completely out of their control or they had nothing to do with. Um, for instance, um, some people would um, call the NRA extremist organization or say that they supported it. Extremists, but the NRA actually um, had a, I don't, know, I don't think it was a bylaw, but to take, you had to take, basically take an oath of allegiance to join the NRA. And then that oath, you um, denounced any extremist organizations you, you agree to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. So the NRA was not that um, at that time, at least. I mean, they've, they've become more extremist today, obviously, but not them. They were, they, they, they wanted that patriotic label on them that they had earned, um, especially after World War II. From 63 to 68, what were politicians and political leaders' views on gun control at the time? Well, I think in 1963, because so many lawmakers had put forward different gun control proposals, lawmakers had to get quickly spun up on this issue. Um, obviously, their staffs would, would educate them and so forth on on, on the bills and issues. Um, so, so I think that's one big change that happens right away out of this. Um, with that said, it really does not move the needle, um, all that much because the talking points put out by gun rights advocates were, had no gun control counterpoint. There was no organized gun control opposition at that time. Yes. The NRA and other gun rights advocates would often tell their supporters, I mean, even going back to the 1920s and say, well, there's this organized effort, of gun control supporters that are secretly influencing politicians and trying to take away your guns, uh, there was no such effort. It was all made up. Um, it's in fact, not, not until 1968, the emergency committee for gun control that you, you have your first really, um, organized gun control or opposition to the NRA. So the NRA is basically, basically able to put out talking points with, with, with no pushback. And, and that was effectively able to stall, um, gun control legislation, even though, you know, it was on the minds of many and, and, Ultimately, after Kennedy, I mean, again, the spotlight was on the NRA, and they knew it. And what they did uh, to their advantage is they would often put out um, information saying, well, you know, we support reasonable gun control, but this is what we think is reasonable. And, and their definition of reasonable was really nothing. It was bare bones, wouldn't really stop anybody from getting access to a gun. But they would say, you know, the real enemy of the state is the people that are pushing for firm gun control because they're trying to take guns away. Um, we're trying to find that moderate ground, try to work with us. So they, they kept doing, trying to do that political straddling approach that it worked so well for them um, going up through the 1950s. Um, and, and it effectively worked um, until um, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And things quickly got off the rails. Um, 
members, uh, well, at least in, in the federal government, members of Congress knew something had to be done. And that's where you see the first gun control um, bill passed at the federal level um, in 30 years, um, at least restrictive gun control bill. And then, you know, Senator Robert Kennedy is assassinated not long thereafter. And then we see another. Um, and, and I think we can go into um, stop right there for right now. But, uh, you know, that, that that's really the big turning point is when Senator Kennedy is assassinated that um, I mean, this issue becomes seriously hot. Right. So, yeah. So picking up on that, then then how the gun vote uh, shaped the 1968 American election. Yeah, I think I think even before Kennedy, um, Senator Robert Kennedy was assassinated, there were there were there was discussions that gun control become could become a 1968 election issue. But um, after Martin Luther King Jr. died and was assassinated and the gun control first gun control law was passed and then Robert Robert Kennedy um, was assassinated. It, it quickly got elevated up. Um, you now, then you start to see, um, and this wasn't immediate though. I want to say for the first week to ten days after Senator Kennedy was assassinated, everybody was on board. Um, a good strong majority, both the Senate and the House, were doing something on gun control. In fact, the the letter writing campaigns were overwhelmingly eight or ten to one in jurisdictions in support of Congress passing strict gun control. Um, but we all know that Congress cannot act usually that quickly unless something's already in the hopper and things were forced to sit and politicians were given more time to consider and they went into recess. So that gave time for the gun rights advocates to come back and institute their own letter writing campaign and basically sway politicians back to opposing strict gun controls. Um, Mike Mansfield, the Montana Senate minority majority leader, is a good example of somebody who right after Kennedy's assassinated, he comes out in support of firearms registration, but within a matter of weeks, um, realizing that um, what was happening, he, 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 he changes his vote, doesn't vote for firearms registration anymore. And there, there, are, there are dozens of examples um, in that. Um, but the, the big thing that happens then um, is that for the first time in American history, um, the Democratic and Republican Party platforms have a position on gun control and gun rights, at least for the Republican Party, because the Republican Party at least recognizes um, some form of a right to a gun. And it's not just there. You start to see governor's conferences, um, state party platforms, you name it, anything that involves politics, gun control became an issue. It was a talking point. It was seen as a wedge voting issue that which people could um, significantly benefit from. Um, if your opponent supported gun control, um, you may want to support gun rights just to have a wedge voting issue. Um, but in many jurisdictions, it was a non-issue. You know, both would be strong gun rights, or both would be strong gun control. But you would you would see if it was a issue like a, a what we would call now like a purple district that if your opponent was for gun rights, you're like, well, you know what, I think I'm going to be for gun control. I have to find those voters. Um, but at that time, what's interesting is that the demographics of these voters. And their real impact on the election is completely unknown. Nobody knew what their impact was. Nobody knew if they could swing or sway an election. It's just people jumped on something to um, that was divisive to the country to get hopefully grab the attention of those one or two voters. So, so when exactly do you think, or can you pinpoint the gun rights lobby starting to radicalize a little bit, uh, or at least uh, push the push into more of a uh, politicized? Um, uh, I don't necessarily like, you know, becoming more politicized as opposed to um, being just a issue that people on one side or the, of the aisle or the other could could take up. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, following the Gun Control Act, you start to see the rise of what I refer to in the book as the no compromise um, movement. And the no compromise movement basically took the position that they would no longer compromise on any gun control bill. So if if you have a bill and it had a lot of gun control provisions, you could, you know, in the past, maybe come back and say, let's lessen a couple of them, but we'll go with that. And maybe there's kind of a moderate middle ground. Um, but this no compromise um, uh, movement basically is like, no, 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 you don't compromise on anything, everything you pose, any and everything. And they use the NRA's talking points to make this argument. So the NRA basically had these talking points already in place, but they are, you know, going after circa 1968, they're technically moderates because uh, extremist gun rights organizations are starting to form, um, especially at the local and state level. They are questioning the NRA's model um, for opposing gun control. They're also wondering why the NRA is not putting money into politicians or paying for campaigns, which the NRA could not have time given their status. Um, and everything is getting called into question. So you got that going on, right? And you got the NRA is, is suffering uh, and trying to find its balance and is trying to still court those those gun rights extremists while at the same time trying to promote a moderate message. In fact, it, there's I think there's memorandum that I found that would say, you know, or, or letters that they would say, you know, the NRA will never become a partisan organization. It would it'd be detrimental to us to ever become um, aligned with one party or the other. But they quickly start to see that things are going um Far to the right, um, Nixon in '68 was taking a gun rights platform, and um, in fact, before him, Goldwater had as the as, as the Republican nominee. So, um, Republican Party was shifting towards gun rights, and at the same time, the Democratic Party nationally was switching towards gun control. Now, again, neither was a monolith. There was no Republicans supported this and Democrats supported that, but the national party politics were leaning that way, which would then, you know, when you're talking about presidential elections. Um, would lead um, groups like the NRA to support Nixon and other Republicans. Um, eventually, what ends up happening is the NRA gets kept, keep, keeps getting pushed to the right and to the right and to the right towards the no compromise movement. That um, they they will they got there in 1977, but not without um, them trying to pivot. They tried to pivot and and basically stand up a lobbying organization within the NRA that was going to be standalone on its own from from the NRA and the NRA shooting center West. Um, and a former uh, NRA official known as Harlan Carter, who was ousted by the NRA after losing um, the 1976 election, after, let's say, after uh, Ford lost the 1976 election to um, Carter, ended up having to be forced to resign as well as his followers. And he ends up putting these talking points out in a way to convince NRA members to, um, to reform the NRA and take it over, um, which they do. And then that's how the NRA um, formally becomes radicalized, although... There's an argument made it was always radicalized um, within, um, and they made the situation, they created the situation that they got into. Let's put it that way. Do you think that part of the reason why, um, you know, maybe Democrats started to embrace gun control was just because, was because of uh, the sort of historical accident that three of their major leaders were killed by gun violence? Um, you know, to what extent do you see uh, the radicalization of uh, towards the right of gun control, of, of uh, gun rights moving just because of that, like that sort of historical, those historical accidents of the three assassinations of JFK, RFK, and MLK. That's a, that's an interesting take. Um, I never thought of that before, but what I, I don't think that that necessarily had to do with it. Um, they were the majorities. Um, 
So they own the Gun Control Act, right? So when they, when they passed those gun control laws in 1968, those were owned by the Democrats. And you, can, you can't pass that type of legislation and then go back and say, um, well, we oppose it and want to completely repeal it. Now, some Democrats did. Some Democrats completely flipped and thought, hey, after 1968, they, they think that um, firearms owners are an important voting contingent, and they completely flip on on the Democratic Party and say, you know, we want to undo a lot of these provisions or maybe even repeal the whole Gun Control Act altogether. But the leadership in the Democratic Party knew that they really couldn't do that. It would it would, it would look bad on them. Mansfield, Senator Mansfield is a, a great example of that. He didn't completely change his um, approach, but he was willing to adopt a few um, or push forward a few laws that would undo the quote unquote um, unburdened burdensome restrictions um, that the NRA pointed out. Um, but yeah, I just think it kind of just was a something that, you know, the 68 cement election and 68 gun truck kind of cemented, right? And then Nixon um, went law and order. Um, and then Democrats also more or less held most of the city. So um, it kind of just, it was kind of, the shoe kind of fit, you want to say, for both parties. And it, and it kind of grew from there. So can you summarize where the battle lines were by 1980? Um, by 1980... You know, nothing still has cemented. Um, I, again, I can say nationally, obviously, the Republicans are the party for gun rights um, from the platform. Um, we know that to be true. And um, but at the same time, let's say this um, in, in 76, um, Carter, President Carter, when he ran, um, he put forward several um, um, talking points and uh, messages to try to to urge firearms owners to vote for him, saying, you know, well, hey, I'm a firearms owner. I I I'm a sportsman. I understand guns. I like hunting. I, I will only, you know, he he supported technically, he supported handgun registration. He said, that's where I would stop, handgun registration. Um, he tried to get him to vote on this side. So it kind of shows that the Democrat, um, someone like Carter, was also thinking about this vote as well. Um, but they could never really shake after that because the NRA had already gone Republican. Um, and, and, and come 1980, Reagan, who had been an ardent defender of gun rights at this time as governor of California, was the presidential nominee and he ultimately wins the election and he comes out with a unapologetic support for gun rights so when he wins in a landslide in 1980 um gun rights advocates and and let's be honest many people in the press and the nation i mean writers are writing about this and and they start to see the firearms owner and the sportsman block or whatever you want to call it as a powerful um voting contingent so um that really aligns the Republican Party with it, and everybody after Reagan has kind of kept going more and more towards gun rights. Um, you know, I did something, I forget the numbers, in my 2014 article where it showed in Florida how, you know, in a, in a like in a six to eight year span, how few Democrats had supported gun rights over gun control um, by, but over that span, basically there had, there were zero Democrats within the 10 year period, you know, with a decade it was over. Um, so, so now we're at the point now that it, I mean, you, you know, you have very few people like you know Joe Manchin, who I think would be a moderate on this, right? Um, it, it, there's not many of him left. Or Bernie Sanders, correct? Yeah, uh, it, you know, the the book ends ends uh, with with Reagan, um, and you know, you said at the outset that part of what was inspired what inspired you uh, to write this book was to just understand the current debate, um, and you know, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about when you're looking at the present day debate, if there's anything that you think, you know, either side could learn from the past about how to maybe have a more effective conversation so that we can 
uh, you know, not have this, you know, this kind of just insane conflict that just breeds uh, utter hatred around firearms. I think, I don't know if this answers your question. Here's what I will say about what this history kind of speaks to me is that if you go back and you, if you really read the book and you read the talking points and the arguments for or against gun rights or for or against gun control, um, the needle has not moved all that much. We, we The same arguments that were being made in the 1911s and 1920s and 30s are still being made today. Um, and that's kind of sad to me um, to think that we have not really evolved on this, that people retreat to their respective um, talking points or their positions um, and they and they haven't moved one when a bit when I think what needs to happen really is you know you need to have um, more honest conversations um, with your gun control support you need to talk to some gun rights and vice versa um, I know I have those conversations when I go to conferences or speak or even when people find out what I do we have those conversations um, and, and they need to be had because um, where we're at today is that you have one party who's just so adamantly for gun rights that they will rubber stamp anything and everything, whether it's removing restrictions on carrying guns in bars while you're drinking, restrictions on blind people carrying guns, uh, removing training requirements, you name it, like things that to me, and for a long time, just common sense. Um, Or, you know, something like a background check, right? Um, Polls show 90% of people support background checks of some form. Well, how, how does that 10% decide for the rest of us that we can have that? And, and the reason that 10% decides is because it's become politicized to the point that you have a whole party that's against it and one party that's that's supporting it. So instead of the 90% being listened to, you have um, a party that's opposing it adamantly. And, I, and um, the NRA could not see the benefit of that you know, in the 1950s and 60s, but today they, they, they realize it. And that division party politics has really um, prevented us from making the needed reforms that we need to make or even stopping um, new laws that have removed restrictions and had made um, access to firearms easier and more firearms in more places. In my opinion, we are at, we've already crossed the tipping point. You've created basically a perfect storm for the societal problem we're at today with gun violence. Um, so hopefully by reading this, you can kind of, uh, a reader will understand how we got to where we're at today and maybe, maybe make a decision for themselves. Well, how, how do I fix it? Or how do I have those conversations with, um, my friends and family, my loved ones, or even with my representatives to say, you know, you've been saying this for not, you know, a hundred years, uh, it hasn't come true or you know, you're saying this for a hundred years and, and look where we're at today. You know, what has more guns really gotten us? Are we really safer? Are we in a better place? Um, yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that there's not a place for gun rights. I think there is, or, and I'm not saying that, that we need to have, um, unduly burdensome gun controls. Um, but I, I do think there is a moderate middle ground that we could do. Um, but it'll ultimately take having those conversations. No, I think that that's a, that's a really uh, a great point. And I, and I do think that, you know, that the history that you, that you dig into is, is useful just because, you know, it's always good to go back and see, you know, at what point in time was the debate different? Were the people on one side or the other not the ones that that they, as they appear today? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with this project out, I'm wondering. You know, this is obviously a, a topic that riles a lot of people up, and I'm wondering, you know, if there's any interesting response you've gotten, or 
you know, since you've published it, different ways that you've thought about or been surprised about how people uh, have uh, talked about gun gun rights and and uh, and the gun lobby. I haven't gotten much feedback in that regard. Um, every feed, all the feedback I've gotten is, you know, it's it's a very well researched book, and they're, they you're they're learning things that they had no idea about, and it, I think it's so early on that. Those that have read it are still digesting it and they're still trying to like, well, what does this all mean? Like, or, or how do we fix it? Um, certainly the book tells the story of how we got to where we're at today. And I think, um, again, I, I don't think it's my place to say where we should be unilaterally, but my hope is that we at least have those discussions. And I, I could tell, tell you that the feedback I've gotten is people are, people are starting to think more about this. Um, um, whether it's, I mean, I mean, just politically, I mean, the, the, as the book points out is, you know, this whole idea of um, the sportsman, what they call back then the sportsman voting block or, or you know, firearms owner um, voting people out. You know, I think Clinton was one that once said that, you know, that's who that's who responsible for flipping Congress one year. Um, it's really all a myth. I mean, we're so gerrymander to the point right now. It doesn't the, the firearm block doesn't matter firearms owner block doesn't matter except for Republican primaries. That's it. I mean, that that's the impact that they have. But until we've got to, the, to this point where we're at with gerrymandering, um, I would say they really had little to no impact once you start digging into the evidence, as I do in my book, um, about people that allegedly the gun lobby defeated. Um, that's not why they lost, because um, it doesn't make sense when you compare it to other metrics and you start analyzing the data. So um, yeah, I mean, we're at a point, and, and and the only way this is going to change, and I'm probably saying the same with the Democrats and certain gun control provisions, is that we're going to have to have those hard conversations again. That we you got people that are retreating to their corners for the primaries um, to get that primary election because you know they're gerrymandered to the point that once they get past that primary, they're pretty much in. So when they face their opponent, um, yeah, hope that answers somewhat the question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The only way the needle has ever moved on any. Um, gun control legislation is if a national tragedy puts a, a spotlight on it and then people start talking. The problem is, is that you only have such a small window to act because right. the next tragedy will happen or, or world problem that moves it, moves it to something else. Um, so you have a very small window. Um, this is where gun rights is, is as the overwhelming advantage because you know, they've, they've worked so systematically at the state level to undo these restrictions and then sue, um, in the courts to get other restrictions undone. Um, it's, it's, it's been quite fascinating and, uh, I would say depressing in a way to watch because, you know, it's, it's, it's not a fair fight in any way, because once you undo something, if I, if I restriction place and I undo it, it's much harder to ever put that back in place. Um, it, it's just, that's just how history of the law has always worked. When you, when you give people more freedom to do something, when you try to take it away, it causes a lot of anger. And I think you saw that um, recently with what's happened with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, is that you have a, a groundswell of anger among women, and um, particularly that are not happy with that decision, and understandably so. Um, I think it was wrong as a matter of, of both law to overturn it, and I think it's wrong um, politically to not give women that voice to make that decision. But that's just me. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for being guest of the New Books Network. I think that, you know, this is a, a really important book, especially, you know, for the current moment. Um, 
I, you know, I highly recommend people go out and, and, and check out Vote Gun um, because, you know, it really just does add uh, that history that is just missing from from this debate. Uh, and I think that, you know, obviously people always talk about Second Amendment and what did they what did the founders mean and all these things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's good to it's good to also deal with the more recent history of gun rights, too, because it really just shows how, you know, think, you know, the current state that we're in is just not necessarily what the main way of thinking has always been uh, for, you know, for Republicans or for Democrats or liberals or for conservatives. Uh, so I, I do recommend it for that. Uh, so thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Caleb.